Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Hello, Good Shepherd Church. How y'all doing? I'm from Oklahoma originally, so we, you know, how y'all doing? <laughs> it's good to see you today. My name is Daniel Grothy, and uh, I love your pastors. I love Austin and Katie and this team here. We were here for dinner last night, praying through the building, walking the building, hearing the history of this church. We were doing a little preaching cohort, uh, talking about the, the art of preaching. And I just think about the four plus decades of faithfulness from saints around this place. So just don't look now, but the spirit of the Lord is doing a beautiful thing here, here at Good Shepherd. And I thank God for you. So give yourselves a hand today as, as we remember all that God has done. I, I left dinner here last night and went back to the hotel. And I walked in the hotel and in the lobby there were just these men that were like the size of mountains. They were like 14ers in themselves. Just continents of human beings. And I was like, what is happening here? The lobby is filled with these gargantuan dudes. And, and then I went to bed and I got back up this morning early for breakfast and I went down. And all these gargantuan men bursting out of their shirts, bald-headed and beards. And they have 30 eggs on each of their plates, putting creatine on the eggs. And, and I was like, what is going on here? So I walk up to one of the guys and I go, uh, what's happening? Because there's like a disproportionate amount of mountainous men here. And he goes, uh, we've got the Colorado Strongest Man competition today. He goes, he goes we're all kind of fit and we're all kind of fat. <laughs> and he wasn't lying. I mean, they were just gargantuan men. So anyway, some of you are like, why are you telling me that story? Because it happened. Because it was, uh, anyway, I'm thrilled to be with you here today. And uh, I just wrote a book this last year called The Power of Place, Choosing Stability in a Rootless Age. And Pastor Austin asked me to speak on this today. So what I'll do is I'll read this text, Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the book, and then I'll pray and we'll jump in. So hear the word of the Lord out of Genesis chapter 1, 26 and on down. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea. Now I'm just going to ask you to flag in your mind the physicality of this text. This is not some spiritual text out there in the ether. God creates them to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And then God does what he does. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, fill the earth, the creation, and subdue it and rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Let's pray. Lord, we need to hear from you today. All of us have lived our week in business meetings and in conversations and we've heard the political pundits and we've read the news cycles and there's just been so much noise coming at us all week. 
So here on Sunday morning, we stop and we pause and we open our hearts and we open our minds and we say, Lord, speak to us. We are listening. We need you to heal us. We need you to deliver us. We need you to shape us into your holy people. We need you, Lord, to speak. So we pray that your words would race through this place, that your words would race through these aisles, that your word would race through our hearts today. Make us your holy people, we pray, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Five years ago, I got called to officiate my Grandpa Dan's funeral. He was 86 years old, Daniel Kemp Wilson, out in Lapway, Idaho. I'm Daniel Wilson Grothy, named after him. This is my guy. Married to my grandma Wheezy, Louise Wheezy Wilson, for 66 years. And they called us out. We had a family reunion about two weeks before he passed. So we were at his house on their family land on the Snake River, camping out there and just all gathered, 50 of us, all of us, 29 great-grandchildren for Grandpa Dan. And Grandpa Dan was on his, what became his deathbed. He and Grandma Wheezy were back in the bedroom and he called me in and he said, Daniel, I'm ready to meet Jesus. I'm at peace. But there's one thing I haven't done. I've never been baptized. Would you baptize me? And I said, Grandpa Dan, I would be honored. And so he, we, we took the, the bed out into the living room so the whole family could be there and in front of the windows with the mountains in the back and you could hear a pin drop and he wasn't able to get up out of the bed so I brought a bowl of water and I poured it on his head and I wiped his head with the towel and then I poured it on his feet and I wiped his feet with another towel. I still have those towels today. And I baptized him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and his eyes were closed and you could hear the room quiet. And he said, there is no more fear. And a week later, he's in the presence of Jesus. It was just gorgeous. They called me and they said, hey, you know, come, come back out for the funeral. And so I flew out to officiate the funeral in Lapway, Idaho. It's on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation where the Snake River meets the Clearwater River. And my grandparents, uh, white people, are a minority in this Indian reservation. Beautiful people, the Nez Perce tribe. And they've watched my grandparents live faithfully in that community for 86 and now Grandma Weezy's 90, 90 years. And those people have honored my grandparents and blessed my grandparents and my parents, grandparents have served them. And at the funeral that day, the whole town, 500 people came in a church much like this. And Christians and non-Christians going, praise God for a man of God, Dan Wilson. And what I watched over 86 years of him living faithfully there as a farmer and also as a rural mail carrier, he knew everyone's home address by heart knew their names and their home address by heart. What I watched is Grandpa Dan and Grandma Wheezy, when people needed food in their pantry, they would spend their money to fill people's pantry. When people needed driven to their doctor's appointments in town, miles away, Grandma and Grandpa would drive the old people who were usually 10 years younger than them. <laughs> to the doctor's appointments and they would sit out in the lobby and they'd make sure they got to the car with their walkers. And Grandma Weezy's still leading worship at her church every Sunday as a 90-year-old from the piano. Living lives of stability in place. They'd put their roots down and they lived and Grandpa died there. And Grandma Weezy will enter her rest in that community at some point down the line. And I saw the power of stability in place. Now, what many of us don't know 
is that in Christian tradition, Christian history, the saints were called to take vows. Now, some of us will know the obvious ones. They were called to the vow of charity with their money, that you are not your own. Open your hearts and open your pocketbooks, and God has blessed you like he told Abram and Sarai, I'll bless you and I'll make you a blessing, and through your offspring, I'll bless all the nations of the earth. So open up your hearts and open up your pocketbooks. Take care of each other, the vow of charity with your money. We would know that they would have taken the vow of chastity with their sexuality, that your body is not your own. You are bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, honor God with your body. Be clean. Be pure. <laughs> so we would know the vow of charity and the vow of chastity, and we would know the vow of obedience to Scripture, that the Bible is our book, and we should hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. But what most Christians don't know is that the very first vow that St. Benedict called the people of God to take was the vow of stability in place. To put down your roots, to live faithfully, to stay stable in your community and try to die there. Try to live the long obedience in the same direction in one place with a group of people. So some of you are like, okay, vow of stability, that's interesting to me. So what I wanna do today is put three things in front of you, the, the three purposes behind the vow of stability. Why were the saints of old called to take vows of stability? The first thing that I wanna tell you about the vow of stability is that through the vow of stability, God wants to give us a gift. God wants to give us a gift. Now you notice in the garden, the very first gift that God gives humankind is the gift of place. Think about that. That's an interesting reality in Genesis 1 and 2. God takes Adam and Eve and he sets them down in the garden to rule over it and to tend it and to take care of it. And Adam, you get to name the animals and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And it says that they walked in the garden with God in the cool of the day. And you know Adam and Eve had their little pockets of the, the garden where, oh, the, the, the bubbling springs over there are just stunning. And you should see the sunset in the evening over in that portion of the garden. And over over here, man, it's just, it's verdant with life and, and fertile and it's explosive with, with crops over here. And you know that they understood the place that God had given them. Through the vow of stability, God wants to give us a gift. And the very first gift that God gives humankind is the gift of place. Notice that when the fall happens, the first curse is the curse of placelessness. Here's your first gift, here's the garden. Adam and Eve take the story into their own hands and sin enters the world and chaos and death and confusion and, and Cain killing Abel with it. The family is broken apart. And the first curse is the curse of placelessness, exile, losing home. And this is why we walk the streets and when we see homeless people, there is that just endemic heartbreak. They don't have the safety net of family and friendships that many of us have and so the first gift is the gift of place and the first curse is the curse of placelessness. But I want to drill down just a layer deeper and ask what the gift of place actually does for us. I'll put three things in front of you. The place gives us security. Long before Abraham Maslow wrote his hierarchy of needs in 1943, philosophers and anthropologists and theologians and sages down through the ages have been telling us what we know in our bones, which is this, uh, to call, a place to call home is foundational in the great quest of becoming. Children thrive 
when there's stability in place, when there's routines, where there's my little nursery, my little crib, and mom and dad don't take me to Walmart at 11 p.m. And, and, and I've got my little place, my little kindergarten that I go to and the teacher that loves me. And when we have the, the stability in place, we have this deep security in our being that enables us to thrive. So place gives us security. The second place, the second thing that place gives us is identity. Identity, I, I'm a pastor's kid. Grew up in church my whole life, unlocking the doors on Sunday morning and then locking them up Sunday night. Any of you been to those Sunday night churches, you know? Like church, church. Like, you know, the, the, the newbies come on Sunday morning, but the, you know, the people who got a first class ticket to heaven come on Sunday night and Wednesday night and all the prayer meetings and all. So I was that kid unlocking the doors. I was a church kid and I had this group of 25 extended aunties and uncles in the faith. They weren't my biological bloodline, but these are my people. And they started to recognize me as a young man and they'd go, hey, man of God, we see the hand of the Lord all over you. And we pray blessing and they'd lay hands on my head and sometimes they'd anoint my forehead with oil and the sign of the cross and say, God's got a bright future and I can see it all over you. You're gonna be a prophet to the nations. And I didn't even know what a prophet to the nations was, but I knew I was one at eight years old. And this, like, I had the security of place, but also this identity began to rise in me. And my pastor called me up one day on a Sunday morning. I was nine years old, sitting in the front row of my parents, and it was offering time. And he goes, Daniel, you got a word of encouragement? Come on up here and give us a word. And I'm scared out of my mind. And I'll just tell you, you only come unprepared to church one time in a church like that. Next Sunday, you better know I had a word burning in my soul, you know, and notes in my pocket. And, and they started giving me chances and an and identity rose in me that, you know, these people see something of the hand of the Lord on my life and I better rise up to meet that calling. Place gives us security. Place gives us identity. But the third thing that place gives us is the gift of mastery. We begin to practice our craft. My next door neighbor, we, we live on a, a ranch with three families and my sister and brother-in-law is one and then our dear friends who are like family is the other. And th our friends, he's a custom home builder and his boy Ryan, three years old, he put on a tool belt first thing in the morning. He's got tape measure on one side, he's got a hammer hanging out the other side, he's got you know nails and screws in different pockets and he's just three years old and he's running around fixing things and you know he's got his drill and he walks into my house and says, Mr. Grothy, you're your picture's crooked. And I said, shut up, young man. You know, <laughs> shut up. You fix it. You fix it. You know, this kid can do anything at three, four, five years old. Why? Because he grew up in an environment where that was normal. And it gave him the chance to practice the mastery of his craft. Think about Peyton and Eli Manning growing up in Archie's household. 13 years for Archie in the NFL. And those boys thought being in an NFL locker room on a Sunday was normal. And memorizing a, a playbook throughout the week was normal. And being in the weight room and learning and watching film was normal. Steph and Seth Curry, Del Curry, their dad, 16 years in the NBA. And they just thought that hooping it up and balling and being in the gym with the older guys, athletes that can jump out of the gym, was normal. Is there any surprise that they began to develop that gift of mastery? Place for them gave them security, it gave them identity, and it gave them the chance to practice their mastery. Through the vow of stability, God wants to give us a gift. That's the first thing that I want you to see today. The second thing about this ancient Christian vow of stability is that through the vow 
of stability, God wants to make us holy. Everyone say holy. I just got to say, I'm a pretty decent Christian when I'm by myself, on my own. You know, in the prayer closet, I'll go away to the monastery for three days out of the year and just seek the Lord and read the scriptures. And, and I'm by myself and I'm worshiping and I'm on my knees. I'm a cr decent Christian when I'm by myself. It's just all these other people <laughs> that make it hard. You know, like kids leaving their laundry everywhere when you told them 12 times. And kids not putting the dishes in the dishwasher or, or someone cuts you off in traffic or something like I'm a great Christian when I'm by myself, but actually think about this. The fruit of the Spirit does not develop in isolation. Have you ever thought about the fruit of the Spirit, love? What is love for? For giving it away to other people. Joy, peace among tribalistic society. We can become the peace of God. Patience with other people. Kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is developed in the midst and in the context of relationships. And friends, if we're going to take the vow of stability, if we're going to live faithfully in a place, we're going to have to learn to grow in patience and in the fruit of the Spirit. And it will make us holy. I I grew up as a musician and have, have played and traveled and recorded and, and uh, played in some stadium tours through, throughout the years. And I'm, I'm at the local church now, but that was what I was doing early on. And when you're in a band like this, you have what's called a writer that you send ahead before you come. Anyone ever heard of a writer? And you say, I just want green M&Ms and room temperature Evian. And I want this and I want that. And, and you show up in the green room and magically everything you asked for is waiting for you. And you land at the airport and they've got a 15 passenger van on the curb and you get in the van, they take you to the uh, ev uh, event center and you show up and you walk into the green room. And what I realized after a few years of doing this is that I was getting everyone's best 60 seconds of their day. Hey, it's great to see you, Daniel. Is there anything we can do? Can we go to Starbucks? Do you want one pump or two? You know, what? and they're just giving you, they're always on and they're always happy and they're always smiling and they're always ready to serve and to lay down their lives. And then I would go back home and I would not get the best 60 seconds of my children's day. And I started to think to myself, this is like actually a bad environment for me to be in because it'll make me think that that's normal, that the world should revolve around me, that I get to send ahead my rider in every situation and show up and just have the world catered. No, friends, if you want to become holy, people will be the way that God makes you holy. Learning, as Jesus said, to turn the other cheek and to go the extra mile and to bless those that curse you and to pray for those who despitefully use you and to lay down your life to wash the feet of the world. If you want to become holy, God will use people. And the vow of stability, your commitment to a place to make you holy. Our places and our people can do this. They can make us holy. But there's a couple cultural trends at play that make it really hard for us to stay committed to a place. And I'll put those two things in front of you. First, we live in an age of wanderlust. We're, we're looking at everyone's social media highlights and the, the celebrities jet setting to their home in the islands and all the, and just working with their personal trainer every day. It's just so hard to get up and to work with my personal trainer. And then my chef has my, you know, my breakfast waiting for me. And it's just the per like, oh, it must be so hard, right? 
But we live in this age of wanderlust where we see all of these other lives out there that are appealing to us. And, and if we're not careful, what it will do is unsettle us from committing to a place in this age of wanderlust. The second thing is we have become pathologically conflict avoidant. My grandpa Dan, who I told you about, in this rural community of agrarians, and if he had beef with someone, it's a metaphor, <laughs> if he had beef with someone, he would take them to the Greasy Spoon Diner down at the corner and sit over a bad cup of black coffee and he'd say, Charles, we agreed on a price. And when we shook hands, my word is my bond and we agreed on a price and you're trying to increase the price on me and it, it, it creates instability in our community. I wanna be your friend for 50 years and I wanna do business with you for 50 years. So when you hear what I say, my word is my bond and I need to know from you, Charles, that when you speak, that that's your bond too. And these guys would hug it out and they'd say, you're right, Dan Wilson. And, and my grandpa would say, is there anything I'm doing that bothers you? Any way I can be a better friend to you, Charles, and serve you? And these guys would get up from the table and they would settle their friendship and it would, they would be bonded together. That's what our grandparents have done in the past is look each other in the eye and name the thing and ask for unity to be restored. We now live in a conflict avoidant age where we cancel people and we ghost people and we find, even if we have to be at the same office as them, we find new routes through the office to walk so that we don't have to pass their cubicle. And we, in their, we're in the same place, but we can't make eye contact. La, 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 la. And we act as if we can just do, no, friends. We have to look each other in the eyes. If we're gonna live the long haul together, and sign up for the vow of stability, it's going to be through confession and repentance and apology and please forgive me and living in humility. We live in an age of wanderlust that keeps us moving and we live in an age that has become pathologically conflict avoidant. But this monastery that I go to once a year for three days of prayer, these, these brothers, these monks have committed their lives and taken these vows of stability and up on the wall, there's this, there's this paragraph that I think that's worth us looking at. I wanna put it in front of you today. It says, we vow to remain all our life with our local community. We live together and pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. <laughs> Wherever we go, there we are, right? And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion and when, not if, when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up one's preferences and forgiving. I'll just say to you, if you want to become holy, remember that people are the great purifiers. Through the vow of stability, God will use that vow to make us a holy people. The third thing and the final thing, I'll tell you a story and we'll receive communion and go home. The third thing is through the vow of stability, God will use us to refamily the world. Say refamily. God will use us to refamily the world. My dad grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's about to be 67 and he was the only child of his parents, Melvin Joseph Grothy and Velma Ida Grothy. And, and they got married later in life. And 
Um, Melvin was a, a Tulsa driller. He worked out on the oil fields, the hard hat, all the tools, came home just, you know, fractured, greasy, calloused hands at the end of every day and fell into bed, exhausted. He served in the military and was in Berlin on the day that Berlin was liberated and just served his nation beautifully. My grandma, Velma Ida Grothy, five foot 11, elegant woman, just decent as they come, hardworking as they come. She was in the military too during World War II, here sending uh, uh, notes back and forth to the front lines of the war privately, and she's doing great work for her nation. They were both excellent people on their own. They just didn't know how to be married. And so they fought, and they fought, and they fought. And I'm not talking just verbal abuse. I'm talking like war and they'd be at the dinner table my dad's five years old as the only child and he said two or three nights a week the table would get turned over and steak knives would become weapons and they would pour scalding coffee on each other and burn each other with hot irons and just dogpile in the house and my dad is five years old diving on top of the pile trying to separate his parents and he's just wailing can't we work this out his dad slept in his own room and his mom slept in her own room and my dad had his own bed and he said, from five, six, seven, eight, nine, I'd cry myself to sleep every night praying, God, would you just give me a happy family one day? He'd never been to church, but he just, something in his soul said, this isn't right. When he was nine years old, he walked to church one day his parents never went, but they didn't keep him from walking to church this Sunday morning. So he walked a couple miles across Tulsa showed up at Sheridan Assembly, and the worship leader was up on stage, and he was leading the sound check before the service, and this little nine-year-old boy walks in the back of the room during sound check, and he stops the sound check, and he goes, hey, young man, come here. What's your name? I'm David Grothy. Okay, who are you here with today? He said, me? And he said, oh, goodness. Well, my wife, LaVon, and I, we sit right there in the front row, and we would love for you to sit with us during the service. So just plan on sitting with us. But come up here during the sound check. We're about to be done, and we'll go back and, and kind of get set. And let me introduce you to the family. And that Sunday, this little nine-year-old boy, who's a total stranger, gets swept up into this family. Vep and LaVon took him to lunch after church, and they drove him home. He walked to church, but they drove him home. That was in an America when you could do that. And I'm really sorry that we've lost that America. Maybe we would do, to, do well to get that back. So they took him home and they said, hey, tonight we've got a kids choir rehearsal because Easter's coming up and I think you'd do great in the kids choir. How about we pick you up at five? And he said, well, great. So they picked him up that evening, brought him to church and then took him home, got him a root beer on the way home. And the next Sunday, my dad walked to church. People started gathering around. Hey, David, it's good to see you. He sits with Vep and LaVon in the front row. The next Sunday, Frank Reeder goes and picks him up, one of the men of God in that church, and says, I'll just start driving you to church. It's on my way. And my dad gets swept up into this family. Well, he's 15 years old, and his dad calls him. The marital strife continues. His dad calls, says, son, we've got to drill a new well tonight out in the fields. Tell your mom I'm going to miss dinner. Just eat without me. Okay, dad, love you. A couple hours later, my dad and his mom go to the front door and there's a police officer there and a police chaplain. And they said, is this the Grothy home? Uh, yes, sir. Can we come in? Would you please sit down? Tonight, your dad and your husband and eight other men were drilling a new well 
and there was an explosion underground and all nine men died. My dad was crushed, 15 years old. He's the only child. The most important man in his life is gone. 19 years old, he's a sophomore at Oral Roberts University there in Tulsa and at school doing studies. And his mom calls him one afternoon and says, I have this just splitting headache. I think I need to go to the hospital. Can you come pick me up? Dad drives across town, gets his mom, goes to the hospital. They start doing some preliminary scans and, and they go, ma'am, you have a stage four brain tumor and you've got a month. And a couple weeks later, Grandma Grothy passed. My dad's all by himself at 19 years old, orphaned, tragedy and sickness. But you know what? He wasn't alone. Because for 10 years, he'd been a part of a church that became his family. And Vep and LaVon Ellis showed up at the hospital. And Frank Reeder showed up at the hospital. And those people, when my dad and mom fell in love at 22 and got married, Vep Ellis officiated the wedding. The man who found the little nine-year-old boy by himself during a sound check 13 years later stands up and says, you are now man and wife. And to this day, Vep is about to be 80. My dad and Vep go play golf all the time. Thick as thieves, best friends. And what I'm here to tell you is that as we live this way, God will use us to refamily the world. My dad was losing his family. My dad was lonely in the world. He was a nine-year-old walking to church by himself, but then all of a sudden people started reaching out to him. And I just want to tell you, we live in a world that is deeply lonely. We live in a world that's heartbroken. We live in a world of blatant individualism. And you know how God is going to refamily the world? He's going to do it through the local church. He's going to do it through Good Shepherd Church right here in Loveland. And so I'm calling you today to sign back up, to sink your roots down deep, to lay your life on the line to open your hearts and to open your homes and to open your pocketbooks. And if you will do this over the decades, you've already got four decades in as a church. If you'll continue to sign back up, you'll see what the psalmist said in Psalm 68. It says, God is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. And God sets the lonely into families. God will use you to refamily the world. Eugene Peterson, when he was asked about what is the church, and Eugene mentored me for 10 years, a dear friend until he passed it, same as Grandpa Dan's age, 86 years old. Eugene was asked, what is the church? And he said, the church is a colony of heaven in the country of death. So church today, I'm calling you to sign back up to be a part of the colony of heaven in a country of death. And we will help each other cross the finish line. We will usher each other into our rest. And then we'll wait for Jesus to come and make all things new. But right here, right now, through the vow of stability, God is going to use you to refamily the world. Can you say amen, church? I want you to quiet your hearts and to bow your heads. And I want to speak this blessing over you. I want to pray this kind of stability over you and the gift of stability. And the fruitfulness of stability. And Lord, I pray today for the Good Shepherd congregation. I pray that you would use them for your glory. I pray, Lord, that you would do all over again what you've been doing for the last 40 years, setting the lonely into family. I pray that you would use this church to be a blessing to this neighborhood, that you would use this church to be a blessing to the schools in this region, that you would use this church to be a blessing to the universities around here. Lord, I pray that this church 
would be the way that you refamily the world right here in this neighborhood. So Lord, I pray, bless them and keep them and make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them. Lord, smile big upon Good Shepherd Church and grant them peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Much love, church.